Well, we're uh, coming to the end of our eight-week uh, overview of the book of Genesis, and today, man, it's, we're not, we're not going to be able to do justice to this rich character who his story carries out the last 14 chapters of the book of Genesis. Uh, his name is Joseph, and man, we're just going to scratch the surface. I encourage you to dive into those 14 chapters yourself this week and really unpack the, the wealth of experience and wisdom in this man who was faithful, faced a lot of hardship, a lot of persecution, a lot of God shaping him and testing him and giving him increased responsibility and blessing him at every step of the way. But we're going to focus our attention on chapter 39, one episode from the life of Joseph. And just to set it within context... Can we go through those eight words of Genesis together one last time here as we, as we wrap it up? It's in, your, it's in your sermon notes. Some of you are like getting annoyed about this. I apologize, but it, it's good for you. It's healthy. It'll help you down the road as you can remember the sequence here. So if you need a reminder, it's there on the bottom of your sermon notes. But here's, here they are. Ready? Creation, fall, flood, nations, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. Man, you guys are good. You got the, the outline of Genesis there. It gives you a, um, a reminder of whose son is whose and, and how the, the sequence goes. So this guy, Joseph, um, to set the context a little bit, his dad was Jacob. We just went through the outline, so hopefully you can remember that. Um, the end of Jacob's story, God gives him a name change in chapter 32, and he confirms that again in chapter 35. So he goes from Jacob, which, does anybody remember the, name, the meaning of the name Jacob from last week? Somebody who grabs the heel, a deceiver, you know, kind of, yes, exactly right. So that God says, okay, you're going to need a new name as you receive my promises. His new name is Israel. So he actually gets the name of the nation of Israel, and that word, that means he strives with God or he wrestles with God, he contends with God, or it can also mean God wrestles, contends, fights. And that was all tied to this episode in chapter 32 where Jacob is in a wrestling match with God. And at the end of that wrestling match, God touches his hip, dislocates it, and from that moment on, he walks with a limp. And that becomes part of the, the diet that the Jews... Uh, commemorate, they don't eat that portion of meat in that socket of the hip to remember this was a day when Jacob had to learn an important lesson in his life. You know, maybe, maybe the, the, the meaning of that name could be that God is the one who fights your battles for you, or it could be don't mess with God. God's going to win. But that, that is kind of wrapped up in that meaning of the name Israel. And he walked with a limp from that moment on, remembering that time of wrestling with God, remembering that God is the warrior. He's the, he's the one who wins the battles. And it, it, it's, a, it's a marker of his faith in God. And so then we hear about these, now the descendants of Jacob, 12 sons who then become the leaders of the, the 12 tribes of Israel. And so um, if you remember in Jacob's story, he went to marry Rachel and he got a two-for-one special. He ended up with Leah as well. And both of these lovely sisters came with a couple of servants. And there are children born from uh, both Leah and Rachel and each of their servants. It was a different time in world history, okay? So this was, uh, this was acceptable at that time. There, there were, um, you know, multiple, multiple wives was a part of the ancient Near Eastern culture. Um, it wasn't until later in, in history and in God's word when, 
when you know you get to the New Testament and one of the qualifications for an elder is husband of one wife. And so there's a, a new era in, in redemption history that we're a part of today. But this was the reality in this part of the world. And so uh, of the unfavored wife, Leah, the firstborn son, Reuben, was, was that oldest son that would then be the, the natural one to receive the birthright and all, the, all that comes with that, all the blessings of the dad and kind of the inheritance. So Reuben was the firstborn. He had some other brothers born of Leah, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulon. Great baby names, by the way. Just I hope you're taking notes here. And then from Rachel, the, the wife that, that Jacob loved, were born Joseph and Benjamin. And then from Rachel's servant Bilhah, two children, two sons, Dan and Naphtali. And then Zilpah, Leah's servant, was the mother of Gad and Asher. That's all at the end of chapter 35 if you want to uh, check that out, verses 22 through 24. Um, at the end of the story, now, the 12 tribes of Israel, if, you, if you're familiar with later in Israel's history as you're working through the Old Testament and you're hearing the names of these tribes that I just mentioned to you, the names of these sons, you'll, if you're a, a careful uh, observer here, you'll notice that later in Israel's history, there is no tribe of Joseph. You know, as they're, as they're parsing out the land uh, in the book of Joshua, distributing that, there's not like a, a portion given to the tribe of Joseph. Well, that's because at the end of uh, in, the, in the story of Genesis here, as, as the blessing is being given, Joseph brings his two boys to dad, and their names are Ephraim and Manasseh. And his dad puts a hand on the heads of both of these sons, and he basically gives them the blessing of their dad, that, that their dad would, would have received as the favored son. And so you'll hear later about the half-tribe of Ephraim, the half-tribe of Manasseh, or the, the tribe of Ephraim Manasseh. So that's the descendants of Joseph. That's how the 12 tribes work out. So that's a little bit of the family history. Now, one more thing you need to know about the family history before we get to chapter 39. As you can imagine, in a blended family like this with two wives, four moms, 12 brothers, there's some family drama. There's some problems. There's some struggling. There's some comparison and some competing that's going on here. In fact, there's a key verse in chapter 37 that says, when his brothers saw that their father loved Joseph more than all of his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. And the context there in chapter 37 at age 17, he, Joseph is out tending uh, the flocks with uh, some of his brothers and he brings back a bad report to dad about whatever's been going on there out in the field. And so that's one layer of like, you know, if you go rat us out to dad, we're not going to take too kindly to that. Um, there's also the whole, uh, you know, amazing Technicolor dream coat that his dad makes for him. Or wait, that's, that was the, the musical. May not be the exact verbiage there. But the idea is there, you know, dad gives a special garment to Joseph that none of the other brothers get. And that, that garment is an expression of his love, his favor to Joseph. It's another way of focusing the attention of the brothers on him with envy, with animosity, with competition. Creates another rift in that family relationship. Add to that the dreams that Joseph begins to have. This is uh, one of the ways that God speaks to Joseph. Rather than having the one-on-one the -on -one encounter like he did with Abraham and Isaac, 
uh, confirming the covenant. You remember the promises that God gave to Abraham? I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless you with descendants and land. Your descendants are going to be as numerous as the sand on the seashore and the stars in the heaven. It's not just a blessing for you, Abraham, but through you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And that promise and those blessings confirmed also to um, to Sarah as well. No, it's, it's a blessing for you as well, Sarah. There'll be kings coming from your uh, descendants and your offspring. Well, for Joseph, God affirms those promises through dreams. And so he begins to have these dreams which require some interpretation. And they're kind of strange dreams. There's dreams about, you know, sheaves of grain bowing down to another uh, uh, pile of, of grain. Well, Joseph chooses to share these dreams with his brothers, but the implication of the dream is, hey, brothers, you guys are all going to bow down to me. And then, oh, by the way, I had another dream tonight. Now, not just you, but mom and dad are also going to bow down to me. Well, once again, his brothers just do not see the, the poetry in that dream. They're not, they're not excited about that. There's competition and anger directed toward Joseph uh, because of all these factors. And so one day, Chapter 37, as, as they're out at Dothan, pasturing the flock, taking care of, uh, of the dad's livestock, they, they see Joseph coming, the other 11 brothers, and they go, here comes the dreamer. And they come up with a plan. Let's kill him, throw him into a pit, and then tell dad that a fierce animal ate him. That's, <laughs> yeah, they got some family issues. But luckily, the oldest brother, Reuben, says, well, let's just do part of the plan. Let's just throw him into the pit. But let's not shed any blood. And he's thinking internally, I'm going to rescue him and take him back to dad. So the brothers are like, okay, we'll start with that. They throw him in the pit. And then their next thought, I think it's, it's humorous there. Let's eat. You know, a bunch of boys. So they, they, they sit down to eat a meal. And as they're waiting, now Joseph's down in the pit. Judah looks up. And he notices that there's a caravan of Ishmaelites or Midianites on camels passing through the area. Reuben is not at the scene at this moment. And he says, I've got an idea. Instead of killing him, let's pull him out of the pit and sell him to these Ishmaelites as a slave. And that's what they do. And now Reuben returns and finds out, what did you do with Joseph? I was, I was about to pull him out of the pit and take him home to dad. Oh, we've just sold him into slavery. And so then they kind of put the plan together, going back to their original idea. They kill a goat, put the blood on Joseph's pretty coat, and they take that back to dad and they just kind of lay it before dad and allow him to draw his own conclusions. You know, is this Joseph's coat here, dad? Yes, and it's covered with blood and he concludes that he must have been killed. And they let that lie go. So now Joseph, he's sold to these Ishmaelites who then are on their way to Egypt. And when they get to Egypt, he's sold again as a slave to the house of Potiphar, who is one of the commanders, one of the officers of Pharaoh's army. He's the captain of the guard. How many of you think you have had a rough week? You know, imagine this guy. You know, your 11 brothers just collectively decided that, you know, rather than murder you, we're just going to sell you as a slave. And now you get to go live in a foreign land as a slave. Abandoned, betrayed, 
singled out, sold out, left for dead, forgotten. And yet, as Joseph is in this new country, new language, away from anyone he knows, away from anything he's known, he's still remembering those dreams that the Lord gave to him, which indicate blessing, restoration, hope, a future. Even in the midst of this confusing, tumultuous time in his life, he's remembering the promises of God. And so let's, let's read now in chapter 39, because that brings us to uh, Egypt and Joseph now as a slave in Potiphar's house. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man. And he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. Man, the circumstances are not very good in Joseph's life. And yet in the midst of the pain and the confusion and the disappointment and the rejection and the abandonment and the betrayal, Joseph is still under the favor of God. He's being blessed in Egypt, in slavery. God is seeing his condition. His promises are persistent. They even extend all the way to Egypt and a circumstance of slavery. And God is with Joseph, giving him success that was not just evident to Joseph, but pagans that were watching him could see that God's blessing was on him. This Egyptian who doesn't know the Lord is watching this slave and he's saying there's something unique about this this young man. Uh, he's everything he touches turns to gold he's succeeding he's flourishing he's prospering and he takes note doesn't even know the the cause the source the reason why but the the blessing the prosperity the success is evident on joseph so what is uh, what does this pagan egyptian do verse four so joseph found favor in his sight and attended him And he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge and because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. I mean, you know, this Potiphar is, is not a dummy. So he's going, okay, if, if everything that Joseph is involved with is flourishing and prospering, I'm going to give him more responsibility. I'm going to put more on his plate because really, in my world, if all I have to worry about is how do I get this fork up to my face, that's a good day. And this is how Potiphar is, is looking at Joseph. He's, he's uh, happy to heap more responsibilities on Joseph You know, as long as you're worrying about stuff, I don't need to worry about stuff. And in fact, when you're running things, it's working better than when I'm running things. And so there's increased responsibility and opportunity placed on Joseph, not because Joseph is so cool, but because God is blessing him for his purposes. Do you remember the promises that God gave to Abraham? One aspect of that was through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. 
And here in this episode, we're seeing that promise fulfilled. You know, these Egyptians, this Egyptian household is experiencing God's blessing because Joseph is there. How, why is it that in times when, you know, I hope you've gone through a season in life like this one, right? Because there's a bad season coming in Joseph's life. And hopefully you're not there today either. But, you know, maybe you're in this kind of a situation right now where things are going well. And you're looking at life and you're going, man, I'm really blessed. You know, things are going well at work, at home. Uh, you know, the, the, the retirement account is up. The stock market's doing good. There's some equity in the house. Feeling good about life. Maybe you're in a season like that. First of all, remember it's a season. Just to caution you. <laughs> Maybe you can remember a time when it was not so rosy and things were not so grand. But in, that, in those seasons of blessing and plenty we tend to look to ourselves. You know, we're tempted to think it's because I'm so cool, because I just know how to work angles, because I can make it happen. Joseph could have been tempted in this moment to look to himself and go, you know, look at me. Man, I have overcome adversity. My family was against me, but look at me now. Look at how cool I am. Look what I have achieved. Look what I have done. Look how I have succeeded. Yeah, Potiphar, I am pretty much the man. Give me more responsibility. I can take it. Everything I do will succeed and flourish. And yet, it's clear in this story that really it's not because of Joseph that he's being blessed, that he's finding success, that he's prospering. It's because the Lord is with him. The Lord is at work. The Lord is allowing in this circumstance blessing and prosperity because there's something bigger going on than just Joseph and his opportunities and his success, his achievement. A lesson I take away from this is don't be afraid of those times of blessing and prosperity and success and promotion and advancement. That's okay. That can be a gift from God in your life. It's not the goal. It's not the, the be-all, end-all. You know, unfortunately, there's a version of, of uh, quasi-Christianity religion today that says this is the only part of the story you should ever read. God wants you to always flourish and prosper and expand and that everything you touch will, it will be uh, turned into gold. And it's a, a theology of the prosperity without the complex interwoven theology of suffering that you need to have as well. And you've got to have both of those functioning. But I'd say don't worry about the the prosperity that will come at times, maybe through you for God's kingdom purposes. The Apostle Paul said, I found the secret of contentment in every circumstance. Whether there's plenty or scarcity, whether I'm healthy or sick, in the good times and the bad, I know, I know contentment. And I think Joseph had that heart where he's recognizing and seeing the Lord is with me, the Lord is sustaining me. Oh, now the Lord is blessing me. Now the Lord is giving me new opportunities to expand my influence. People are watching. So I encourage you in those times of blessing and success to have gratitude and humility be what guides you. Have those be the virtues and the, the heart posture that you have to God. Gratitude that says, God, thank you. Thank you that you've blessed me. Thank you that all good things come from you. And then have humility to go, Lord, I know this isn't about me. 
I know this isn't for my enjoyment. It's not for my name. It's not for my comfort. But I humbly give myself to you if it's a promotion, if it's expanded influence, if there's some pagans looking into my life and seeing your blessing on my life, then help me to be a light in their world to point to you, to give glory to you. Give thanks to the God who provides in those times of blessing. I also think, you know, if you look at Joseph, we don't see any indications of any bitterness toward Pharaoh. He's not going, who does this guy think he is? I'm doing all the work around here. All he's doing is feeding his face. He's making me worry about everything. We don't have any indication of that sort of a chip-on-your-shoulder attitude toward, in this case, what would be the equivalent of the employer. I think that's another tendency that we have, right? As we are given blessings by God, increased responsibility, favor, some measure of success. Again, it's another version of self-centeredness that says, you know, I want to get recognized for what I'm doing. How come I'm having to work so hard? But what if you would have a different attitude toward your employer and go, even if they're an Egyptian pagan who doesn't know the Lord, I'm glad that I'm here to be a blessing to help bring God's favor, that a ripple out, a trickle-down effect of me being here as a, as a believer, as a follower of Jesus in this company, is that God's blessing is on it, even though the, the, the man or the woman running this show doesn't know God, doesn't honor Him. It's a pagan environment, and yet I'm here to be a blessing and allow God to work through my life. What if you were to have that attitude? And say maybe part of what God is doing is preparing me for the next assignment. He's shaping some things in my heart. And this time of blessing and increased responsibility is a part of him equipping me for what he has planned and I don't even know yet. So for Joseph, he in this first uh, episode here in Egypt now, he's found a way to be with God and submit to God and surrender to God in these times of blessing and prosperity and success. That's a good lesson for us to learn and to grab hold of. But those aren't the only times God is working. And so the story changes now at, at the, uh, as we head into verse 7. It says, Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. Man, as if he didn't have enough going for him already, right? He's getting promoted. He's getting blessed. He's a good-looking dude. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph. So he wasn't the only one noticing how good-looking he was in the mirror. And she said to Joseph, lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he's put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except yourself because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her or to be with her. And you look really, you know, despite the the long conversation that Joseph has with Potiphar's wife here in the face of temptation, his reasoning in why he's not succumbing to this temptation, why he's not giving in, is that 
he would, he would recognize this as a great wickedness and sin against God. So he knows ultimately it's not just this uh, master that he serves, but there is a, a master that's above this earthly master that he's serving in Egypt. Someone that he belongs to, someone that he's serving. And out of his love and commitment and respect to God, he's not going to commit the sin that he's being tempted to participate in. You know, we don't have Joseph here rationalizing. She came on to me. It wasn't my fault. We don't have him justifying the decision to choose sin. Well, no one around here appreciates me and how important I am. All that I've been through. I deserve some reward. Or no one will know. It'll be a secret. Joseph is not going that path of justifying, excusing, rationalizing, coming up with a plan on how can I give in to the temptation that is enticing. You know, this is likely the most beautiful woman in the land. You know, if you're a, a powerful, influential person in the ancient Near Eastern world and you've got your, your pick of who you'd like and this is the criterion that you use, you know, um, so there was no doubt temptation there and opportunity. And yet Joseph isn't grabbing hold of that forbidden fruit. He's not like Eve and Adam in the garden looking at the fruit and seeing it's desirable. And he's resisting temptation and he's choosing to serve the Lord. And he's remembering the Lord is with me. He's with me in the times of blessing and provision and promotion and success. And the Lord is with me in the times of temptation and secretly sinful opportunity. The Lord is with me. And it's because of that decision that he resists despite the persistence of that temptation day after day after day. And guys, I'll warn you, Usually it's not as easy as it's described in the story. It's not usually as blunt and black and white as a woman saying, let's go to bed. Usually it begins with much smaller, simpler, easier to justify and rationalize times of flirtation, times of connecting, times of sharing and talking. And there's a progression that the enemy will lead you down that's more subtle than what Joseph faced. I I almost feel like this would be easier if, if, if a woman just you know, came, at, came at you with that sort of a direct affront. And yet there are temptations that we as men face you know, in the form of a computer screen, a mobile app, when no one would know, when there's a temptation to uh, view something that would lead us down a path that would be in, in, you know, maybe justified and rationalized in your mind, but it would violate the very thing that Joseph says, great wickedness and sin against God. And there's a, there's a, a progression. You know, if you, if you go over to uh, King Super today, you're going to notice that there are parts of the story that are appropriate for you to be in. And then there's some areas that you really shouldn't enter. You know, the first set of doors will be going back maybe behind the, the meat department where it says employees only. And if you take a little peek in that door... And you look around and maybe you say, well, you know, it doesn't seem like there's anything dangerous past these doors. And once you go into there, you may find some additional rooms and, and doors and maybe a, a red bar on a door that says, do not press this lever, alarm will sound. 
and you push that, maybe, you know, the alarm's sounding, but no one's coming, and you go further and further in. Next thing you know, you're in front of the, the safe back in the office area where they keep the cash, and the and Aurora Police Department is on the way. And that's really the progression of sin. It's those subtle little decisions that can be justified, excused. You start looking around, you say, well, that wasn't so bad. The flirting, the viewing pornography, giving little par- parts of your heart away on a path toward really rejecting God and getting yourself in serious problem that's going to ripple out to affect not just you, but others around you. And ladies, you're not off the hook either. These temptations come your way. I mean, this is a story that uh, makes it, drives the point home for the guys, but ladies, there are temptations that come. There are those opportunities and those people who entice and will come to you with something that may seem appealing, it may uh, be something you could rationalize, justify, excuse, and it leads to destruction. Why do we face those times? Could it be that God is working in times of trial and temptation? Could it be that there's some strengthening and some resolve and some commitment that comes? And the next time you face that temptation, to maybe have your antenna up a bit that goes, wow, this is really, this is really hard. There must be some big assignment that God has for me in the future if he's allowing me to endure this level of temptation at this moment. There must be something in my character that he's working, some dependence upon him, some surrender and yielding and crying out to him and saying, God, help me because day after day, this temptation is coming at me and I need your strength. I'm not sufficient in myself to resist the temptation. But he strengthens us and gives us grace in those times. There's times when it requires a radical response. And for Joseph, that day came in verse 11 and following. One day, when he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house was there in the house, she caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. I mean, this is, a, this is now a radical move. He realizes there is imminent danger right now. I unintentionally got myself in a precarious situation where it's just the two of us alone. And she grabs a hold of him. And he shakes off that coat and runs for his life. That's the correct response to temptation. Flee. Get out of there. Run away. If you find yourself in that level of danger, it could be that day after day, there's some temptation put out before you. God gives you the strength for that. But when that temptation reaches out, and grabs a hold of you, it's time to run. Unfortunately, the story doesn't end there. So she's now holding his coat. Verse 13, As soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. That phrase has some innuendo in Hebrew. If you go back and read chapter 26, when Isaac and, um, and Rebekah are in the presence of the king of the Philistines, Abimelech, in chapter 26, verse 8, Abimelech had been told by Isaac, this is my sister, even though it's his wife. But then Abimelech looks out the window in verse 8, and it says that he saw Isaac laughing with, his, with Rebekah, his wife. 
And that, that turned it on, on an instant. He said, behold, she is your wife. You lied to us. One of our Philistine guys could have slept with your wife. What would have happened then? And he forbids anyone to touch Isaac or Rebekah at that moment. So there's something about that phrase uh, when Isaac is laughing with his wife and here when Potiphar's wife is saying, you know, my husband brought this Hebrew here to, uh, to laugh at us. There's some innuendo there. There's some double meaning. So then she continues on. He came into me to lie with me and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home and she told him the same story saying, the Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came in to me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. Total lie, right? Now if it were a just world, the master would hear her side of the story and go and talk to Joseph and say, you know, this is what my wife told me, is that true? And Joseph would tactfully but truthfully tell his side. Go, no, okay, this is a hard conversation to have, but the truth is uh, there's been an ongoing problem here. And I've been resisting, but day after day, um, the temptation has been there. I think you guys need to get some marriage counseling, frankly, sir. You know, not my place, but... Um, there's some issues going on here. Today she grabbed a hold of my coat, so I got the heck out of there. And yet Joseph doesn't even have a chance to tell his side of the story. His, there, there is no justice here. It's a one-sided discussion. And as soon as the master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, he said, this is the way your servant treated me. Or, or th- that was the words that the wife said. Then his anger was kindled. And he took Joseph and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. There's no conversation. There's no his word against hers. It's just her word is enough. And he's placed in prison. Now, you know, I think the fact that he's placed in prison may indicate that Potiphar knew a little bit more of the story than, than he's letting on. In the ancient Near Eastern world, if there was a slave who was accused of doing what Joseph supposedly did, prison would not have been the punishment. That would have been the end of this slave, right? So there's some indication that, that in the mercy that Potiphar is showing, he, he knows what may be actually going on here. But nonetheless, you know, whether you're dead or in prison, this is not uh, a happy day for Joseph. It's it's adding insult to injury. You know, you've been a slave. You experienced some blessing of God. Now you've been falsely accused, even though you did nothing wrong. Really, he, he did exactly what he should have done. He fled. He got out of the house. It reminds me of the, the, young, the instructions to the young man in Proverbs 5. My son, be attentive to my wisdom. The lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, but her speech and her speech is smoother than oil, but in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. And the end of that chapter, for a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. And this is, this is Joseph's heart, his attitude, his understanding when faced with temptation. 
flee. It might sound good. It might look good. It might be something you could justify or rationalize. There's destruction coming. God is watching. God sees all. He knows your thoughts and intentions. He knows the things that motivate you, the ideas that kind of come in and you mull over them for a little bit. Should I act on this? Could I get away with it? Would it hurt anyone? He sees all of that thought process. He knows your heart. What do you do in response to that? Well, once again, come to him with humility. Say, God, you know my heart. Test me. Search me. Know me. Put your finger on those areas that need to be surrendered to you. Protect me from those temptations that come. Give me the strength to flee when temptation grabs a hold of me. And he will answer that prayer. Well, the the lies have been told and believed and Joseph now finds himself in prison. God's working during those times of success and plenty. He's at work during times of temptation and trial. And now Joseph's going to learn another lesson in this prison cell that God is working even during times of discouragement and loss. So he's been unjustly accused. He's not been given the opportunity to tell his side. He's been the victim of a power play. He's been falsely imprisoned. But listen to what happens now in verse 21. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. Maybe you're hearing that story and you're going, it's kind of hard to really get excited about that. Like, your brothers were debating, should we kill you? No, let's just sell you as a slave. You're dragged off to a foreign land, a different culture, a different language. You make a, a name for yourself there, have some measure of success, and now the reset button is hit again, and you're now in a foreign prison. But the prison guard uh, is giving you some opportunity to shine in prison. It's, it's kind of hard for me to get really excited about this. And yet, once again, that story is repeating where God is blessing him and giving him favor now in a very different circumstance. The keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. Look at, the, look at those elements of what's happening to Joseph and, and his heart in prison. The Lord is with him. The Lord is showing steadfast love to him in that place. We were in, in, uh, in the youth Sunday school class. We came across that word in Exodus today. The, the Hebrew word, it's fun to say, chesed. You've got to get that little, little raspy sound at the beginning there. That's a, that's a steadfast love. It's a kind of love that a, a man and wife proclaim on their wedding day when they put these rings on. It's not the kind of love that says, I pledge to love you as long as you're healthy, as long as I'm richer than I was before I met you. I pledge to love you either for as long as you live or until I trade you in for a new model. 
Okay, that's not steadfast love. The steadfast love part is all the, the other parts of that pledge and promise that we made at the altar. The in sickness, the for worse, for poor, and the till death. It's, it's those parts that say, I'm with you no matter what. My love is not based on you or what you do or don't do. It's based on this commitment to love. And we pledge that and we strive for that, God nails it. God is the author of that kind of love that says you don't deserve it. It's not because you've earned it. It's because he is so glorious and so powerful and so loving. And in that jail cell, that's the kind of love that he's showering on Joseph. You know, sometimes you need to go through a imprisoned in Egypt after being falsely accused scenario Because that's the very moment when you can receive and know this steadfast love of the Lord. When you're just, you know, firing on all cylinders and it's a time of blessing and success and there's promotions and God loves you at that time, you may be confused and think, well, he he loves me because I'm so cool. But when you're rotting in an Egyptian prison cell and he shows up and says, I love you, it tells you a little bit about his heart that he sees you, that he sees your pain, that he knows exactly where you are. And it's in those times of discouragement and loss that we are opened to that love that we need from him, that steadfast love. God is is loving him. He's with him. He's giving him favor with this pagan jailer. Once again, he's giving him a position of influence, now in prison. And God is blessing, putting his hands on anything that Joseph is involved with. Maybe today you're not in that time of blessing and success. Maybe you're in a time that's more like this story in Joseph's life where you've been mistreated, you've been overlooked, you've been accused. In those times, can you look deeper than that situation and circumstance to see how God might be working in you? What's he doing in the midst of that pain and discouragement and loss? Are there lessons from Joseph's response that we can grab a hold of? One thing I see for Joseph, you know, the ability to get up in the morning and, you know, as, as, Mike, as Mike Kohenauer says, you know, just put your pants on one leg at a time and just show up, right? You know, it's, it's another Monday morning in an Egyptian jail cell. I'm going to get out of bed and do what God has for me today. My heart not, might not be in it. I might not be really excited. I might be wishing I was back home with the dad who loved me enough to give me a special coat, even though I had those brothers there as well. <laughs> Maybe I wish I was back in Potiphar's house before his wife started coming on to me when there was blessing and prosperity and promotion. And yet here I am. And Joseph is, is, has some measure of contentment. You know, he's able to function. So it indicates that he's content in this situation that God has him in, despite the negatives. Joseph is trusting God to have his reputation. He's not having to go spend all his time clearing his name and justifying himself, proving that she was wrong and I'm right. He trusts that God has his reputation and that in the end it will be sorted out. What about you? In the times of discouragement and pain and being overlooked, 
How much energy are you expending in making sure that your name is cleared? And how much trust do you have in God to have your reputation? And just bite your tongue and let him be the one that works. Joseph is realizing that God is with him. He's receiving that steadfast love of the Lord in this place of pain. And maybe he even gets to the place of saying, you know, God is blessing me in this place of loss and discouragement. He's able to see the influence that he's got right there in a jail cell. He's not alone in that, you know, throughout history there's been Christians who have faced persecution and hardship uh, and they've brought the good news of Jesus to those difficult parts of the world that you and I have not had a chance to you know, be kidnapped in the Philippines by a militant Muslim group like uh, the, the Burnhams, I believe was the name of that missionary couple, right? And they spent years there in captivity having a chance to share the gospel by their lives in a way that they never could when they were your you know, typical American missionaries going and working in a different part of the world. God put them in a circumstance where they could be salt and light in a difficult place. Or, you know, Christians, believers, followers of Jesus during uh, great times of persecution and hardship. What about you? Do you see God at work even in those places of loss and pain and discouragement? James 1 says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete lacking in nothing a theology of suffering god is at work in the pain in the discouragement in the trials there's good things happening in your heart there's good reminders of that steadfast love and there's hope that it won't always be this way the end of the story is not yet written for joseph or for you. There's blessing to come. Um, By the end of this whole story, when you get to the last chapter of Genesis, it kind of starts in chapter 45, but then really the the quote on the front of your bulletin is is, uh, taken from chapter 50. And this is when, in chapter 45, Joseph has a conversation later, years later with his brothers about all that's happened being sold into slavery, uh, living separate lives. But now, at the end of the story, there's a famine in the land. And God has Joseph in a place of influence in Egypt. Once again, he's out of prison. Now he's the second in command of all of Egypt. He's not serving one of Pharaoh's uh, captains of the guard. He's serving Pharaoh himself. He's the right-hand man. And, and he knows that the famine is coming because God has revealed it, this to him. And so Pharaoh puts Joseph in charge of stockpiling food in preparation for the coming famine. And it's during the famine that the brothers come back and they're reunited with Joseph and he reveals himself to them. And really that quote there in chapter 50, when they're afraid now, he's going to get even with us for what we did back then. Joseph says this, What you intended for evil, God intended for good. What you intended for evil, God meant for good. And he's able to see the hand of God at work, even in the difficult and painful experiences that we face. 
So there, you know, that really is the secret of contentment. The end of the story is God is at work. God's at work in your life during those times of blessing, during the times of temptation, and yes, even during the times of difficulty and struggle. So today, we're going to close our service with communion. Uh, This is something we do in remembrance of what Jesus did, that he is the king, in anticipation of his return, that he's coming back. The end of the story is not yet written, but we know how it ends. It's also something we do together. And today, you know, I know in, the, in a room like of this size with as many different stories and, and uh, the kind of week you've had and the kind of week I've had, there's probably somebody at each stage of the story of Joseph here in the room today. Some of you that are going, man, things are great. I needed the reminder that it's because God is, is blessing me, that he's glorifying himself in this situation. Others of you that are facing some day-after-day temptation right now, and you need that strength to endure, to flee, when temptation grabs you, and then still others that are in a place of real discouragement and despair right now. Well, Communion Sunday is a good time for us to gather together to thank Him for what He's done and what He's going to do and to support and encourage one another. It is something we do together as His people. So uh, what we're going to do is, I'm going to ask if, if is, uh, Jim, would you mind just coming and, and leading us in some, in some worship to prepare our hearts? Thank you, brother. And then as we come to take communion, um, let's, let's come up to the tables. And then as we go back to our chairs, get in some small groups of four or five people. And let's take communion together and give thanks and just pray in those small groups. Maybe God will, will lead you to share something about uh, your life that relates to the story. Just say, I could use some prayer in this area this week. And then let's take communion really together as his people today.